Hello and welcome to episode 35 of Of Poetry Podcast with Moira J. Saucer and Katherine Rockwood. Moira J. Saucer is a disabled poet living in the Alabama Wiregrass. She holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Arkansas, Fayetteville. Her work has appeared in literary magazines and anthologies in the United States, United Kingdom, and Canada, including Black Bow Poetry Freedom Rapture Anthology, Visual Verse, Fly on the Wall Press, Ice Flow Press, Mookie Chick, Floodlight Editions, and Fevers of the Mind Poets of 2020. Ethel Press published her chapbook, Wiregrass, and other poems in November 2022. Catherine Rockwood reads and edits for Reckoning Magazine and reviews books for Strange Horizons. At one time, they were an academic specializing in early modern drama. Her poetry chapbook, Endeavors to Obtain Perpetual Motion, is available from the Ethel Zine Press. Another mini chapbook, And We Are Far From Shore, Poems for Our Flag Means Death, is forthcoming from Ethel in 2023. Hello and welcome, Moira and Catherine. Hello. Hello. We were going to open with a poem from both of you. And I'm really excited for this episode because you're both um, Ethel chapbook authors. And I think what Sarah Lefsick is doing at Ethel is just some of the freshest, most incredible work um, in these beautiful, hand, you know, hand-sewn chapbooks. And we've had Ethel, Ethel, we've had Sarah here on the podcast before. And um, so I would love to hear a poem from your books to start with. Um, Catherine, would you like to start? Sure. Um, so I will start with, um, I guess I'll start with Millie Yeager's log. Is that, um, and um so this is actually one of the first poems I um, ever sent out for publication. Here we go. Melieger's Log. After your birth, I sent advertisements of your arrival, franked with bright red stamps bearing gold daffodils. Year of the tiger. We roared into it, crossing through long labor, doubled blind tigers bound with cords together and set free by a knife. Sometimes I wish I were an ox. Sometimes I wish you were. One of us should be steady. One of us should cut less. We're rough on clothing, take meat neatly enough, but afterward quite often use it to beat the walls bloody. You are perverse in ways I can't get round because they're my ways. At each parental crossroad, you're a thorn tree bearing exquisite fruit. I wear your stripes and lay mine down on you day after day with sharp vocalized warnings and with swipes pleading no more. Child, lithe child of mercy, whom I must have mercy for and from, when you are beyond me, safe from maternal teeth, alive, God willing, when you're beyond me, I'll stop worrying about the last bright stamps I keep locked up in inventory. 
preserved from use like Meliaker's log. A piece of your beginning with a warning directed at myself. You have some power to save or spill. Be wise, rank superstition. But I don't care. Tigers need admonition. You. Moira, are you still with us? Yes. Great. Okay. Um, this is the first poem in the collection Wargrass and Other Poems published by Ethel. Uh, and it's called When You Fall. When you fall, most people fall away. It's human nature. There you are, inconveniently sick and poor. You are trouble wrapped in thrift store clothes, a motley creature with little possibility for redemption. I fell from a great height, losing job, apartment, everything. I moved from place to place, hot, menopausal, stiff, and exhausted from pain, nowhere soft to curl up like any animal would and mourn the death of the woman that was me. Nothing worked out. I was unmasked, marked as fallen. The world judged me harshly. Felons at the group home ransacked my bedroom, stole my food. The shaman who read the tarot cards predicted five years of suffering, being unsettled, humiliation, and a great humbling. Like the queen of heaven, Ishtar in the underworld, accused of hubris, imprisoned, he said. I survived the dark descent the five years of shame, poverty, and, and yes, hell. There is no moral to this story. Fuck mythic suffering. Avoid it if you can. Even the worst. Don't deserve trial and banishment from heaven's announcements, the warm rays of the sun. You. So, um, one of the questions I had for you both was about, so it's a question framed around midwifery and the kind of like idea of midwifery and poetry and what brings poems into being. And, and I mentioned to you that kind of my relationship has kind of shifted over time. Like when someone says like, i birthed this poem or um the it, you know depending on who says it sometimes I'm more skeptical as an um, um you know I'm not I'm like resistant to that comparison flavor but there's also something really really true about that um and so I wanted to hear your thoughts about what brought your particular 
poems and your chat books into being. But when you were reading your poems, I think, I think it was so interesting. They both touch on kind of ancient figures, ancient texts, um, myth and legend history. I mean, Meliager and um, Ishtar. And so I thought that was also really, really interesting. Like what brings those particular poems into being. So if you'd like to talk about those poems um, or if you'd like to talk more broadly, however you would like to run, um, run with this question. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to talk a little broadly first and then try to talk about midwife, uh, the, the role of the midwife. Um, poems often begin for me as an image or a sound or sometimes a string of words jotted down in a journal. And then I try to translate it or pull something from below consciousness. Um, I really worked by myself until four years ago. Um, <clears throat> that's when I met Robert Frieda Kenter, the Canadian poet and publisher of Ice Flow Press. Um, I would say Robert has served as midwife for many poems in Wiregrass, truly. Um, he, was, he retrieves things I write in our conversations on Google Chat, edits them, and sends them to me. They start as what Robert terms talking poems. And um, you mentioned Socrates, so I did a little reading. Socrates himself, uh, he, he said he was a midwife helping minds in labor or in thought to discern whether an idea is a false phantom or the discovery of truth. And uh, Socrates talked about the role of midwife in terms of sowing, tending, and harvesting the fruits of the earth. And I would say that Robert um, has done this for me in the most generous way, sorting through the fine, genuine poetic impulses. And um, not for every poem, but for many of the poems. As for um, When You Fall, I really don't know exactly how that poem came about. It just hit me one day that it was a story that I needed to tell. And I realized that, um, you know, it's, it has a lot of exposition in it, you know, which is, you know, for some people that's sort of a no, no, you know, uh, explaining, <laughs> but it's a, it's a story and it's my story. And, I don't know. It was, I don't know. It was my way of owning it and stepping outside of it and saying, "This this happened, and uh, I need to tell the world about it." Because I, a lot of times, I don't think these stories get told because people really are ashamed to uh, say what happened to them. And this whole process really began earlier. Um, and I'll talk about that a little bit later with, with the poem Wiregrass. Does that make any sense? Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, uh, for me, I think it really varies. And I think that's also what, I mean, sometimes like, Maura was saying, you don't really know. <laughs> You're like, you know, I don't know. <laughs> like, you know, why 
why did this sort of set of thoughts and feelings turn into a poem and something else doesn't or it it seems like prose you know um and um but uh for me i'd say sometimes it's a feeling sometimes it's a formal prompt you know that lets me find a feeling somewhere and start to string things together um i remember when my kids were little you know feeling like i was absolutely just gonna come apart if i couldn't find some way to say what it felt like to be a parent for me you know right right then and that's that's the feeling that Meliager's log came out of um and um but i also remember a very particular feeling or process around writing that poem um which was very much that I needed to not be interrupted. <laughs> ah. Well, <laughs> yes, so that's another, I mean, so, you know, if you're going to sort of talk about poems and labor, right, um, you know, or kind of like giving birth or, you know, I mean, that, um, you know, um, sometimes you really feel like you have to see this thing through all the way to the end or something bad is going to happen, you know, if you're interrupted before you can finish drafting a particular poem. Um, and I would say that Meliager's Log is the first poem I ever sat down to write where I both had to worry about that. Um, I mean, you know, if you're writing poems and you, you know, I, I wrote some poems while I was in grad school and that was kind of my job. Right. I mean, my job wasn't to write poems, but it was to write, you know, it was to read, it was to kind of be in quiet spaces. And, you know, uh, Meliager's Log is the first poem I ever wrote where I had the feeling I was like, I could be interrupted at any time and I really need to not be interrupted, you know, so I can finish this or something bad is going to happen. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, but then sometimes it's a prompt. You know, some, a friend will give you some hangers and they'll say, what do you think about, you know, what would you put on these hangers? You know, what would come out of that? Um, and, and then sometimes, you know, you surprise your brain and you get a poem from, from that. Yeah. Um, and reading and rereading things, you know, um, rereading texts that you thought you knew and then seeing something new in it, you know, this next go round um, and feeling like you have to say something about that, um, which is, I have a poem called Utis Odysseus in the uh, chapbook, and that came from rereading the Odyssey, um, specifically Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey, and being suddenly deeply angry about what the Homeric epic does with the dog Argos, the faithful hound. Um, in book 17 and um so uh and then there was a poem i was like i'm really super mad about this mm -hmm. um let's see yeah oh, there it is <laughs> yeah the interruption is really um it's huge in terms of process it's yeah. i mean i think about it's sarah vapp's winter right that book where she like Every time her children interrupt, she puts the interruptions into the text. Oh, wow. And honestly, they're my least favorite part of that <laughs> part. Like, like, I was almost like, okay, but maybe you could just take them out. Like, I, I don't like them. <laughs> right, like, it's right. Yeah. Yes. I'm like, I don't want to yeah. know. I don't want to see the word poop. Or I don't, but they're just like, for me, I think it's like, I'm going to have some adult time and be an adult text. And like, I don't, 
And that sounds, I don't know, maybe that sounds terrible. I, I remember reading this book when I was expecting my first child and it was on like the gifts of motherhood, like what you give to your children. Mm. And the, the first one was the gift of interruptibility. Mm. You give your children mm. the gift of interruptibility. <laughs> and that kind of set up as a specifically yeah. mother maternal, yes. like yes. God forbid you finish a thought or yeah. a task or something. And uh, so I think, I you know, I definitely have like, gender feelings about that too well, you, um, know the, you know the old saying that a man at a desk is working and a woman at a desk is available yeah. um yeah. and uh yeah so yeah, and moira i wonder if you have thoughts on this too because we were just talking about um you know, the isolation of pandemic and like not being interrupted you know like maybe so i'm, I'm curious what your thoughts on are on interruption and well, in 2016, my mother got stage four breast cancer. She had had it. Um, she'd had the breast cancer, but somehow it advanced. And uh, my brother and I spent an entire year. We just, we locked the doors. We, we just, you know, the rest of the family, we just said, we don't want you around because we just needed to care for our mother. And it was 24-7 for a year. Um, I mean, the doctor told her she had about a year. And she wanted chemotherapy anyway. So we took her to chemo and everything. And I mean, I think that was, uh, it was such an intense period of being available all the time. Yeah. Um, that it took me a long time to get over it. A long time after it was after she died, I just lay down on the couch and I mean, my mind just went elsewhere <laughs> for a long, long time. So uh, I think, uh, you know, part of what I don't know, part of and then my brother was with me. They were both living with me here in my house and and my brother's with me and he got sicker and sicker um, from diabetes and so my mind was on that a lot and then he died and then I lay back down on the couch again <laughs> to rest because my mind had been so occupied um, with these two people and I mean the both mentioned in, in the book and um, I don't know I guess uh, the last four years since my brother died has been you know in three years of those in pandemic has been you know, a time when I I sort of reclaimed myself and um, had a lot of have had a lot of time to think, and so I I don't know I think uh, most of the poems in Wiregrass, except for uh, a few, came after all that was over. Although a couple of them came before because. I, you know, I was so busy shopping, cleaning, doing laundry. Um, I mean, it takes, uh, you know, a lot of focus to write poems. And I didn't do much during that time. Does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. In ter I mean, in terms of like caretaking and in terms of, you know, there's this like pervasive societal myth that like, a life is healthy and then 
you know, that, but like disability and, and illness and, you know, it's just like woven throughout a whole life. Yeah. And um, I was already disabled yeah. when my mother got so sick and I had um, pre-cancer and I had taken a lot of trips up to Birmingham to be uh, to be seen and evaluated. And I had major surgery. I was on the table for five hours. And it was basically, it was cured, those people. And, and so, I mean, I was dealing with my own thing and trying to protect my own health at that time too. Yeah. And in pain, in chronic pain. Fuck mythic suffering. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I just don't believe suffering ennobles anybody. No. But I also don't, I also think it's important uh, to talk about it. And I'm going to talk a, a, a lot about that in, in, in a few minutes about, you know, what sort of the, a framework for thinking about it that, you know, I, I have in terms of you know, dealing with darkness and suffering and pain and loss and, and all that. Yeah. It, it always makes me really uneasy. And I mean, I see poems written and published like last week where there's like a glorification of suffering as like a purification process. And I just like, I'm like, I'm always like amazed when I see that again, I'm like, really? Because like when you're having to survive, you don't have like, you don't have access to your whole self. Like maybe, maybe you're able to like no, make pain art. Diminishes people. Yeah. That's yeah, why in, in some ways, you know, my friendship with Robert, Robert mm -hmm. has like become an ex, I mean, I edit his work and he edits mine, but in some way he's like an extension of me because I don't always have the mental reserves to really see even what i'm doing or what the possibilities are that's yeah. where he, you know he he shows me what i've done that's and amazing right it is amazing i mean i don't think in a lifetime i'm really can't believe i've had a friendship like this with that's somebody who's willing to do that i'm not the only person that robert uh, has generously helped but he's helped me tremendously that's so good to hear like yeah so in my pain and my disability and everything he'll he'll suddenly say you know here i'm sending you something here's a poem you wrote and i'm, I'm like are you sure i wrote this <laughs> i don't sometimes i think he interjects things into the poems and it becomes <laughs> it becomes a mm. you know sometimes i'm wondering did he put this in the poem <laughs> did he put something extra in here mm. I, I love the fact that it's also a conversation like that it's you know it's oral yeah. it's like spoken and text and it's kind of you know looking over you know your exchanges with yeah, each other that's and, a, the um, chrysalis queer butterfly <laughs> there was suddenly another voice in here in that poem which is i need you to emerge from the chrysalis and then a little bit later, the open road is transformed. I wait for you in a garden, dense and fragrant. I, I mean, is that something that another person wrote to me? Uh, maybe. Well, this, um, again, this kind of comes back to mystery. We talked a little bit about that. Um, 
mystery. But, yeah, mystery. Yeah, and and that's I think mystery is also tied up in the question of um, like how you chart your own journeys in poetry, which is a question I asked um, because I'm I'm obsessed. I don't know. I think most people are most people is like with the idea of like your yourself's unknowability. Um, and like, it, it's weird when you meet someone in fact, who thinks they know themselves entirely, because I think that's kind of hilarious. And it's like, that's right. Socrates is coming up this episode. It's like Socrates, great joke. So just know thyself. Well, that's easy. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and now we just don't, um, and so, Catherine, you brought up um, mystery in, in one of Moira's poems. In, in fact, Moira's concluding poem in her chapbook. Um, maybe we want to read a mystery poem from each of your, oh. your chaps now. Oh. That's something to be interested in. I love the way the, like, the paper sounds on the mic, I just realized. <laughs> Ethel, Ethel chaps have their very own sound. They do. They've kind of got almost a parchment-y sound. Um, which and, is... and you can read any poem you'd like to now, obviously, and we can talk. We can go wh wherever the conversation needs to go. Okay. Well, I'll, so I have a poem that's that was remains a little bit of a mystery, and it's actually a poem that was published first in Moist Poetry Journal. Um, and and this is so this is the poem that came out of a prompt that um, a friend uh, my friend Luba um, sent to um, my writing group and um, then so I got this poem I don't know where it came from um, it's called to Luba from where we began a floating cloud has forgotten its last rising Forgetfulness of all kinds is a great splitter of forms. Everything is wavering between what it remembers and forgets. What does a cloud gain by remembering? The towers of silence are the province of a careful word. Who shall keep the keepers? Anyone. Dew is the lost memory of clouds. By remembering, a cloud gains in competence what it loses in quickness. It endeavors to obtain perpetual motion so that it may remain uninstructed. Everything is wavering between what it remembers and forgets. Remembering, a cloud will weep in time. Thank you. Um. Okay, so as the original publisher of this poem <laughs> in Moist Poetry Journal, I have to say, when I saw there was a line that you'd taken out, I was like, you oh. took out the is it? <laughs> do you say it clepsidra? Clepsidra, I think. Clepsidra. You know, it's funny. That's another one of these, ver like the mysteries of editing. I can't remember. Hmm, I I did. I'm because not sure. I had yeah. never, I didn't know what a clepsidra was. And so that was my very first like meeting of that word in your poem. And it's a water clock. And after looking it up, I was like, oh my goodness, that's such a beautiful, beautiful word. And so when I was reading your chapbook, I was like, oh no, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. 
<laughs> so I was like, okay, think, we have to yeah, talk no, about revision. Um, yeah, we do have to talk about revision. I should go back. Well, that's the thing, you know, like you kind of, uh, poems shuttle back and forth between mm-hmm. versions. And then sometimes you can't quite remember why one, I mean, you know, I, I feel like, so this is when you study collections of poetry and you study mm-hmm. authors and da, 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 da. You know, one of the things that, that, that people get really obsessed by in scholarly circles is, you know, what was intentional, what wasn't intentional. And I remember making very fiery arguments in grad school about why something was intentional, you know, and now I'm like, <laughs> like maybe not you know I mean it could just have been that you forgot which version you were working with and you know so then you know that's what ended up in the kind yeah. of the edition that got sent to press um yeah totally um and the you know the obsession the protestant obsession with the word yes and yes. um the truth of the word yes you know? yeah and um i had a professor who would talk about the fetishization of the text you know like we <laughs> do we get very wedded like to how something is um but i love that there are multiple versions of poems in existence. And I, you know, when there's a poem I really love in someone's book, a lot of times I like to look up where it was originally published and look at the differences. Cause like we are never in the exact same relationship to a poem or a book at any given moment in time. Like we change, like we, our relationship with the text changes. And, and that's like a really beautiful and like growing up in the church for me, that's what, right. That's what, people would say is that, oh, the Bible is a living word. And that's why when you come to it, something's always new, something. But then like being a student of literature, I'm like, no, that's words, y'all. Like that's right. (laughs) It's like us (laughs) and language all the time. Like we're the living part. Like we're the reader. Um, I probably just committed some great heresy, but it's not just your special book, (laughs) (laughs) y'all. Like, you know, Uh, yeah. And Mario, you would have a different, even even more different relationship, um, having kind of an interlocutor and like someone who's like in conversation with you and your work too, like that. I was thinking about collaboration when you were talking earlier and just, um, collaboration is like the great creative wild card. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it, sort of um i mean i i who was it Foucault says you know that the text is actually not ever created by one person but is you know kind of part of a you know, nothing exists by itself because everything is influenced in some way or another it's impossible to escape yeah. um you know or I don't know, Eliot's idea of influence, right? I mean, uh, this is just <laughs> so direct. and uh, But it kind of uh, detaches me from being totally possessive about and wedded to one way of thinking and lets me look at things a little bit differently sometimes. You know, it's um, mm-hmm. very different than working by yourself. Yeah, when you can kind of enter the fantasy of like, I created all of this. <laughs> I I mean I don't I really don't claim. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean I, you know you're talking about this uh, the last poem did I tell you? That was one of the ones that Robert sent me. <laughs> you know at, that he 
collected or harvested from our chats. And I mean, I, I have no idea what, what's really, he said it's all your words. Um, but I know, I'm sure that he arranged it. And then I went back, of course, and I, I reworked it and everything. But um, yeah, part of the mystery for me is how this came to be, um, you know, what someone was able to find as a poetic impulse and, and show me, and then how I was able to uh, go back and, I mean, it's not, it's, uh, there's something elliptical about this poem. And one of the things I've learned from Ro a lot from Robert about is ellipses, like, you know, how you can, Maybe uh, you're talking about an experience, but um, there are silences in there. And that's where the reader gets to sort of build their own story into it. Mm. I mean, would you like me to read this poem, the last yes, one? Please. Okay. Um, to me, this, this poem is a kind of a mini miracle because I don't know where it came from. <laughs> Did I tell you about Drift Roses? growing low and dense, slowly, ever so slowly, spreading thorns and flowers in glorious green and pink chaos. They thrive this year in the gentle spring in heavy pain, in the time of pandemic in heavy rain. We create another self, disassociate, to absorb trauma. The second self watches from a distance being battered and gets exhausted too. I think unconditional love helps. In the heavy rains, I have my own amanuensis from my kitchen window, drift roses. Is that okay? That's beautiful. Um, I actually, you're talking about uh, versions, uh, you know, the text. I was a junior fellow at the Boulder Shakespeare Library uh, studying Renaissance handwriting. And um, our project was to look at commonplace books and look at one poem and how it got changed and altered from a uh, from book to book. So somebody copying it down made an error and, you know, somebody else made another error and somebody else made another error. And, you know, just, uh, and then whatever we end up with may not have even been exactly what the author intended. So amanuensis, you know, the uh, idea that there's um, a kind of a scribe, you know, in the, uh, that records things, you know, in the natural world for you to not just on paper in the text, not just something you see, but there's kind of an experience that is being recorded, you know, in the world around you. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, one of the, I don't know, you know, sometimes you just kind of wish you could um, preserve, you know, conversations with your friends when you're talking. 
you know, you're like, oh, we were really on a roll there. And I think we said some awesome things, Yeah. you know, and like, and that's, you know, and, but it's like, well, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, on to the next coffee date or whatever, but, you know, it's not going to um, stay. And um, it's so amazing to have someone who's, you know, kind of, as you say, providing a bit of a transcript or yeah. also, also registering the enjoyment of the exchange, right? Yeah. 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 I guess Robert is an amanuensis in a way too. It's so interesting hearing um, Catherine's poem, Taluba, from where we began alongside um, Moira's poem, Did I Tell You? Because I, I'm just so taken with, um, well, the more the more therapy I do right now, the worse my memory is. It's been really bad. Um, and Catherine's poem is just, you know, I, I love the line, everything is wavering between what it remembers and forgets. Um, that memory is so important to how we understand, like, who we are in the world. Um, and in Mara's lines, we create another self disassociate to absorb trauma and that there's this you know this revision of the self that's occurring so like we can think very abstractly about like revising our poems um but of course um, i need to i need to like do more deep reading around this but like i'm always thinking about yates um it is myself that i revise mm -hmm. yeah and what yeah. you're able to remember and what you're able to, it's just, it's kind of infinitely fascinating. It is. And I also the differences in the way poets talk about it, you know, are, are fascinating. And I, I think about, um, so the, I did my PhD on Ben Johnson <laughs> and, and Ben Johnson talks a lot about revising his poems and putting them back on the forge and hammering them again and turning them again, you know, making sure that they're true and that they're, you know, they're yeah. all the flaws are out. He does not internalize that at all, ever. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's always this kind of external process. Um, and um, so anyway, it's just interesting. Um, yeah, I think it took the romantics to really... <laughs> begin that whole process of self-reflection right i don't know i mean as i guess i would say i think i think it was happening you know i mean it's i mean it's it's um but it's it's not it doesn't become again kind of a literary yeah trope you know um and um, if uh, you should not let me go down the Ben Johnson rabbit hole, because just you don't even know like what kind of roots and dirt are going to start coming up there. But mm -hmm. um, but you know, I I I would argue that in his his, <laughs> his his late drama, some of the sort of externalized um, mm. metaphors start to become more consciously internal. You know, anyway, mm. we don't have to go there. <laughs> Yeah, and I was a John, I was like a Miltonist at one point in my life. So, I mean, what is dark in me illumine? I think also disability and blindness and age, mm -hmm. like, has a lot to do yeah. with how you think about yeah. your poetics. Mm -hmm. And Milton has those incredible introductions to books of in Paradise Lost, where it's like he's really sitting with that, like, self darkness. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I just think oh, that's why I got into Milton. That's. I spent too long in the divorce tracks and Benjamin was like, no, <laughs> I need to go somewhere else. <laughs> you are not playing my song, John. <laughs> They're good in their own way. But then I just, I really, 
and this comes back to the idea of like midwifery and um, how did you both come, you know, to your lives in poetry? Because historically it takes women much longer because of, because of interruption, full life interruption, um, mm-hmm. because they're not supported in the same ways. And to find the really incredible women poets con- contemporary with John Milton, which there are plenty of, uh, you have to do a little more work. And um, and I mean, that was interesting. And, and it was really like, you know, people always say like, can you say your dissertation in like 10 words or whatever? But mine was like, women write women 17th century women wrote with and for each other and they like really supported each other and um but also like they were very used to reading aloud to each other versus like silent reading there's all kinds of interesting um kind of technical processes that went along with those developments um but it's still i mean the fact that like one of our books forthcoming from river river books by jennifer sutherland it's jennifer's first book and jennifer's over 50 and you know and age is not something at all we considered you know, like with our books we just chose like the best books that we loved mm-hmm. um but like why why does it take so long why is that so I often i mean i got an mfa in my 20s you know i went to the university work and saw I was there before Jack Bedell and after C.D. Wright. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. And um, I, part of it for me was, it was really a boys club. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I was the only woman in my class that finished. All the other women left. When we went to Iowa or you know, oh, wow. they all left. Uh, Johns Hopkins. Uh, but I'm really stubborn. <laughs> and, but I don't know if, uh, you know, I don't know if it benefited me to sort of endure all that. It was four years for me. I mean, I had all kinds of credits when I went there, but it took me four years to write, to finish the thesis. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, part of it was, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I just, I didn't feel like uh, my work was very appreciated. You know, I felt diminished or something. I don't know if it was intentional. You know, uh, but um, I finally did finish the thesis and you know, at the end of it, Jim Whitehead, who was my thesis advisor, advisor, greeted me and he said, you know, this is just really luminous work. But by that point, I was, um, I put it in a drawer, you know, and I built on it. I I have a full length somewhere. Okay. I have a body of work. It's not a huge body of work, but it's what I've been doing for the last number of years, just adding here and there. But I put the thesis in a drawer and uh, I published, published a couple poems and then, you know, I went to work. And I'm pretty much detached from it because I just felt, I didn't feel like, uh, I mean, you asked about what the barriers were, you know, it was a lot of huge self-doubt and um, fear and, you know, 
So that was a lot of years that I devoted to other things while writing a few poems here and there and just adding to the thesis until I got sick. And then when I got sick, I began to write a little bit more. And then, you know, the last few years, maybe more, but I mean, I'm not young anymore, you know, but yeah, it took me a long time. And part of it was climbing over all the self-doubt from um, maybe not intentional, but, you know, being at a school that was really a, a boys club. Mm. I don't know. You know, There's, I did, yeah. The, the guys got invited, you know, to come watch football or whatever. And <laughs> I don't never got invited to come. Not, not that I necessarily would have liked it, but it was total. The relationship was so different. I have been thinking a lot about the ways that academia at its worst, or I don't know, sometimes I just feel like at its whatever, it's nominal, like reproduces abusive family forms mm-hmm. and um, where it's about your achievement, where, you know, it's more about like penalty versus achievement. It's, um, and it's, it's means something different to survive as a creative writer and a scholar, it's something different to survive and to get through a program than it does to thrive. And like one of the differences I really genuinely think is, was there someone who not only believed mm-hmm. in your work, but like delighted in you. And I think yeah. that with how children grow up and with how we treat our students, that is what makes more difference than anything else. It's like, yeah. Like not just supporting you, which is really important, but like, do they take joy in you? And that, like, that makes people bloom. Like that is what is, I think, the most important thing to me. And, and of course we learn these things often because we didn't have them. They Um, brought a a poet in, her name was Heather Ross Miller, um, late in my program. And she really did take an interest She spent time with me and she showed me how to sculpt my poems. And Mm. yeah, that's when I was able to finish the thesis. I think it gets tricky with female faculty. I'm not going to, I mean, you know, but I think, um, so I won't, but there was, there was a a woman who was um, faculty who was kind of tangentially affiliated with the graduate work that I was doing. And it seemed to me that, you know, as soon as she arrived on the scene, you know, and was kind of someone who was, you know, could write you letters and you could take courses with and, you know, that a lot of the male faculty kind of went, oh, good, <laughs> you know, this she's going to take on the care work, yeah. right, of, yeah. of kind of, of of dealing with these graduate students and their sort of nascent, you know, emotional selves, which are still, I mean, you know, Maura, I don't know how old you were when you went into grad school, um, but I was, I was very, I was 22, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I wasn't really, I mean, I, I, I was just, I had feelings leaking out everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know exactly. I mean? like, and so, and yet, you know, you're supposed to take this very kind of rational, you know, detached, you know, approach to the professionalizing approach to, you know, kind of everything that you're doing, but, you know, um, it wasn't possible for me, but, but I felt that kind of the, the, the trying to balance, like enjoying 
you know, who I might be and mentoring the scholar I could become, like, you know, the, well, anyway, there's all kinds of, I mean, necessary boundaries and protocols around, you know, I mean, you don't want male faculty, you know, being too affectionate with, you know, young female graduate students. <laughs> That's also kind of, you know, a danger yeah. area. Yeah, there's that um, that's, element. If people are ethical, if they're not ethical, that's one, you know, that's a whole separate problem. If they are ethical, there can be a lot of, you know, um, sort of reserve and concern about it that um, reinforces, you know, a, a emotional sort of detachment. Um, anyway, um, but I, but when this female faculty member kind of appeared on the scene, I did, I felt like everybody else was like, oh, good, you'll take care of our, mm -hmm. you know, our little struggling lambs now because you're a woman. Well, Jack Bedell told me that she was instrumental in helping him too. So, well, great, wonderful. I mean, like some, yeah. some, some, some faculty members are suited can do it. I mean, you yeah. know, they they can balance it well, and it's not hard for them. For this yeah. particular individual, it was it was a terrible burden. You know, I'll uh -huh. just I'll I'll say, um, and uh, I think it hurt her as well. Um, so anyway yeah um but it is you know yeah you you go through these um these educational processes and you know and some of what you get from it and again i feel like you know like ishtar you know descending to hell yeah <laughs> you know i mean like you know some i mean you know so you do bring back you know sort of um you know material in in different ways and um uh, and 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 it was interesting to kind of have the first two poems that you Moira read and that I read both have you know kind of mythological content from different traditions that you know that that we are then have become able to layer into you know our own experience and and use uh, as a as a provoking of thought and feeling you know um, and you know that's I feel like what you're trying to get in some ways when you go into a literary education, but it's not what you're told you're trying to get. <laughs> um. Yeah. I asked at one point, I met the poet, Scottish, right? Robin Robertson, hmm. um, who's lovely. And um, he did a, he does a lot of like translating from the Greek and, um, Systems is incredible, but you know, like really violent poems. <laughs> I mean, like Medea, you know, like that. He is mm -hmm. yeah. just translation yeah. of Medea. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, but I asked him, like, why, like, why do you write about these, like, these specific, like, they're so violent, they're so, and he was like, because I see news stories mm. now, yeah, that yeah, echo, you know, yeah. like Midwestern mother. Mm -hmm you know like that kind of and and like some of the very human pressures are still like the, that there's like something like so true that's like echoed um well this actually makes me think about Mora's poem vampire story yeah <laughs> i even debated over whether to put that in there but it, it seemed like it wasn't complete without it without that that was another level of <laughs> disclosure mm. about you know how 
yeah, another story about, um, I don't know, coping and um, finding ecstasy, even in coping with darkness. Well, just just for the record, Maura, I was totally obsessed with True Blood as well. <laughs> and, um, and, and but for me and my husband, it was actually so it came out when our kids were very little again. And so we had this kind of... Um, we had sort of a basement set up. It was like the, the playroom that also had the TV in it. And so it's this room full of children's toys, but like with a big screen. And so sometimes when um, the kids were finally asleep and uh -huh. we, did not, we did not have easy sleepers, like this was, you know, um, that was a dream within a dream that was just not happening for us. But sometimes we would go down and the thing we'd be looking forward to in terms of escape, you know, was like, oh, there's another episode of True Blood. <laughs> so we would go down in this room full of children's toys and we would watch this just freaking scary ass like gore fest it's <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorites of all times you know i just uh i don't know i had a very visceral passionate relationship with the story <laughs> i'm sure if I, I could think about it more deeply i haven't really thought about it very deeply but um except that you know i know um there was just something ancient in the story you know mm. something very ancient about bloodlust and alienation this you know a story of vampires is always a story of alienation and vampires are the ultimate outsiders yeah um, something kind of yeah southern Oh, so southern. About I mean, vampiricism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The blood of others. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which I'm not sure is something that that series did a particularly great job of looking at. Like I'm, you know, that's, um, yeah. Um, I feel like it kind of whiffed on that one. Um, many many works of art do. Um, but. Um, I, if it's not too, um, you know, I don't know if I'm overstepping, but Maura, would you read that poem? Sure, I'd be happy to. I was surprised one of my friends from high school um, that I've kept up with, who's also, well, she got disabled too. And um, so she's been writing, working, you know, on her stories and stuff. And when she wrote me, she said it was her favorite poem. <laughs> And I was surprised, um, but sure, I'd be happy to read it. Um, vampire story. And I should say this is a prose poem. After my mother died, I took to the couch. Cobwebs encased, dimmed the lamps. Gray lace draping ceilings and windows, suspending German roaches. It was a time capsule, life frozen static. In the dark room of a mobile home, in the lush green splendor of an Alabama summer, I watched British crime dramas and spy stories removed from life in a pecan grove. A lifetime of mostly good living and vigilance against dissolution, reinforced by the good deeds of my nightly companions, Small screen detectives and spies gave way for several years to abandon. 
piles of cardboard from Amazon and the pizza parlor transform kitchen to trash dump. The garden's ornamental plants began to droop. Then I found strange sanity and reasons to binge in a vampire story, True Blood. I was drunk with transgressive love, the story of the fairy girl and the gentleman farmer vampire. The vampire's southern twang was a warm bath of longing. What was it about that tale that seemed so familiar? I hurt for his fallen state, felt alive, awake as if I had returned home. I understand now that I stood in the dazzling light of reality, not fiction. The well of fantasy and illusion I fell into, that longing for the vampire's long drink is the antidote to that aching we feel as the lights fade from purple to midnight blue. The creature drive for blood, the lust for living persists in human hearts, animal souls. My quiet marriage to the vampire story lasted only a few weeks and I began to grieve. I was a little bit far away from the microphone. Sounded great. Also, I kind of love, I don't know, I don't, I don't want a podcast to sound totally tend or like totally produced or like there's something to me like when a poet's voice sounds like it's coming down through like a radio transmission mm-hmm. just, like that it's like being beamed to you I just love it I don't know it's very space like for me I just um I think that's why I like podcasts that have a little I mean I was sitting back so I'm just no it's not a good okay grief work Woo. yeah you... I'm sorry what oh grief work yeah yeah like making like you don't think about the fact that you have to make time to grieve and you have to like and that things have to feel like there's like a letting you grieve like what can let you grieve and it's not a make nothing something doesn't make you cry like I really think it lets you cry I say having watched The Little Mermaid behind a mask and just like bolt <laughs> my whole head off like the whole time silently so my kids would see I was like crying. Oh, wow. it's amazing <laughs> super cathartic but I've like been exhausted since then <laughs> um yeah, sometimes you're just like oh now okay now yeah. <laughs> um yeah. yeah that's actually I I have trouble um I was brought up you know in low low church protestantism and um and there are hymns i can't i literally can't sing them because and it doesn't matter where i am you know um but you know i just start to cry and it's um and and i it's a little weird it's not even hymns that i would necessarily think you know would do that Mm. well i was brought up um as a unitarian and um, but our our neighborhood was full of churches, and so I sort of went on my own little journeys, and I spent a lot of time in the Baptist church. <laughs> and uh, 
I have, I'm, I have that. I absorbed a lot of the hellfire and brimstone. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. also the, um, you know, the Old Testament and the New Testament and the King James Bible and all the music that's in there was a profound influence. Yeah. I've been, been on an Elizabeth Strout binge. I think I'm working on like the seventh novel in a row. I just can't stop. She's like really genuinely helping me. Um, I grieve. And um, her characters, I feel like more understood like her character, Lucy Barton, who had like a very traumatic childhood, understood by her in a way like I've never felt with another person. Um, but but one of her characters at one point talks about another character, a daughter who has the gift of tears. And she talks about like that ability. And it's so weird because I think growing up, it was like such a a bad thing. Like if you yeah. cried, it was yeah. such a, a weakness in like, oh, you um, and it's really hard for me to cry. Like, it's not easy. No, so I now, like, I have a totally different understanding when someone cries. I'm like, that's such a gift to be able to cry. Um, and people will sometimes spend years learning how to cry in therapy. So, like, I think when poetry, when music, when film, like, when it helps you get to that point, like, when you can release something. And a lot of times it's, like, anger that needs to come out. And that's the only way it's going to come out, right? Is actually through grieving it. Um, yep. Yep. So important. Mm. Yeah. And to find what connects you to that. You know, if you if you've lost touch with your anger, which is something that, you know, I, I, I mean, women are encouraged to do. <laughs> We're encouraged to not be in touch with our anger. That's, you know, um, and so, you know, whatever kind of, you know, puts the puts the connection back in is, um, you know, yeah, valuable, useful. Um, and um, I think it's so interesting how, again, you know, real just like freaking like over the top melodramatic, you know, purple, you know, like um, gore fests, you know, <laughs> um, like True Blood, you know, and you can feel and I love that. I mean, Maura, in that poem, I love that fact that it's just like you can sink into the accent, you know, of the the, the vampire gentleman farmer. And, yeah. um, and that and that's yeah, I that, looked at your face you know, while I was reading it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, no, I love that line, yeah. you know, as and and but that then then it you know it leads that initial connection, you know, sort of a comfort connection, you know. And it's again, I wouldn't I, it's hard to say which way the current flows, right? Is it the is it the the hunger and the pain, right, that then connects you to the comfort and sort of, you know, or is it, you know, is it is it but you that something in us is trying to get in touch with all of these facets you know of feeling you know sort of who who we are and what we what we're going through um and um that it's fascinating you know i mean for me it was this past year it was our flag means death it was you know like the the ridiculous you know occasional splatter fest but more you know just kind of Again, hopelessly lush, melodramatic, ridiculous, pirate, you know, romance comedy, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, um, the, I mean, and that, and I was, my husband, you know, he would come in and I would be like, it was like, I, I never stay up late watching TV, but there was one night he came in, it was one in the morning and I was like, 
on the final episode of Our Flag Means Death, um, which is where like literal pianos fall on people. Like, and anyway, <laughs> <laughs> and is that, yeah. And, and he was like, really? <laughs> You know, but it's just something you need then for some reason, you know, um, and, and poetry is one of these, you know, it, it, it flows into and out of, you know, sort of these other forms of art um, as well. Yeah. And when you have an academic background, you know, um, there's always, I, I really, um, you know, to me, it's, writing about pop culture as you know and a little bit it's a little bit difficult you know <clears throat> um writing about pop culture is difficult yeah i mean um i don't know i don't know it just um it's so interesting there's just a whole i mean i think i i think frank o'hara is probably someone i always think of first but there's so yeah. many um poets like the way poetry can handle it mm -hmm. like I just think poetry is so adept and yeah. um you know like for as long as you want to talk about like the vernacular in poetry like well what is also part of our speech is like our engagement with like art at all levels and like low high everything and um, and for me, it's like the poetry that lets it all in. That is always the poetry mm -hmm. I'm like most interested, most invested. The last book I read that I was just like, absolutely not, was like a book that was like, it had such like mystical high aims for itself and its feet never touched the ground and there was mm -hmm. nothing to anchor it. And it yeah. just felt like, yeah. it felt like wispy to me. There was yeah. nothing there is like the content like just to abstract itself to such a degree it, it means and that can be very cool um and i'm not saying like no to abstract or no to but it's it's interesting to me that i tend to like poetry that doesn't mind getting its feet dirty or uh -huh. um well i think it i mean i don't know that poem was sort of a new experience for me mm -hmm. and um and it just uh, writing and sort of disclosing <laughs> my relationship to uh, this piece of pop culture that, I mean, seriously, you know, I mean, uh, it, it, um, uh, it had something that spoke to me. Yeah. Can I read a poem? Yes, please. Yeah. I'm going to ask. So you. I was thinking about, I was thinking about, um, you know, poems that, um, let things in mm. and um, and so I'm I don't I think we're so this may be the last poem I read but um, uh, at the end of the chapbook and so you know I think um, the poem that concludes it was a poem where I felt like I finally started to let things in to um, my training um that's what i'm trying to say you know we have this real academic training yep. you know you studied ben johnson <laughs> you know i studied the romantics the english romantics you know and to kind of be permeable yes. after an academic training is yes that's what that I'm is to say. that is it exactly yeah it's permeability you yeah. know which would you know could bring us back to the romantics if we wanted to get 
you know, funky, I guess, but, um, but, but that, um, that, that, you know, and that, but that when you finally write a poem that's permeable, after you've been writing poems that are like, okay, they're like, you know, their own thing, and they're kind of finished, and like, you know, and you're like, yes, that's a polished surface, I can see, you know, work has gone into this, but then you write a poem that's permeable, and you're like, whoa, that's a completely different way of writing, you know, yeah. and, and also a feeling, and so the final poem in my chapbook is one um, that that where I, I finally had that feeling mm -hmm. um, and it's called of experience which is I mean so hey. again like you know it's sort of you know like immediately it's a citation but then haha -ha, it's not mm -hmm. <laughs> so this is of experience the birches up the hill toss their blent yellow green sparkling like surf while the unsecured back screen door creaks and bangs our fall yard's a ship underway, big and solid and restless. The useful winds occupied with the roof and billowing trees don't touch my body at all, but float oxygen in like a kiss. My blue jeans suit me today. My ass has never looked better, and I say that at 46 with some expectation of 50. Yes, it's a great afternoon. It's dreadfully fine. I can stretch. My shoulders are settled in just the right spot for action. Also, they don't hurt. And the air, like cider, no, like good tea, wakes you up, gold-washed, see-through. Twenty years from now, thirty, will somebody conjure this up? Will they say, sip, it's a microclimate, exactly like former October. Look, I don't know. Ask Montaigne, who will tell you a tale of an egg. In his time they had troubles too. Exactly like? There's no such thing. Only every very last day, and the one after that. Nice. Thank you. Thanks. That one's a favorite. You know, it's funny to say yeah. you have favorite poems no, I, I like all the ones you've read but yeah I love it thank you and it's got the ship as a ship I and know. it's like it leads into your next chat book almost, you know almost almost yeah, yeah. ships and um, a little... ships and fluidity hmm. yeah it's beautiful and I mean, it's, you know, one of the questions I've had for you, just of things I always kind of want to talk about, but I do think you both are very um, stanza driven poets and like you use stanza in really beautiful ways. And I, I say that as someone who often defaults to writing kind of like a column poem, like mine tends to just be the room, um, which is the technical term, I guess. <laughs> 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 you know <laughs> uh, but you do you have such beautiful stanzas and of course the idea of room um I'm Italian and um and and Moira your true blood poem it being in a prose form when you were talking I was like oh it's kind of shaped like a television too. <laughs> <laughs> it started out as a as a stanza poem but it just didn't make any sense to me i didn't feel yeah, like yeah. it was earning itself you know um earning the stanzas i mean to me stanzas you know i don't know i guess you said station stanza means room or station 
it's a station in the journey of the poem to me, uh, a stanza. It's an architectural and a musical element. And um, it's musical to me because a poem for me is also a musical score with, you know, musical score fits and starts, pauses and silences, rhythms. Um, and a stanza to me is a musical phrase and a score. That's what a stanza is to me. Yeah. I always think of Linda Gregerson when she talks about that the Tercet saved her life. Mm, yeah. Uh, like, I mean, I have a lot of admiration for forms. I don't usually write in them, uh, but, you know, because I mostly write free verse. Mm. Although sometimes I write syllabic, ver syllabic forms. Uh, but the, uh, I don't know, the beauty and the conciseness and, you know, what, Poets are able to accomplish in formal stanzas is, to me, it's astounding. Yeah. At the same time, you know, Walt Whitman wrote in free verse, and what he did is astounding. Mm -hmm. You asked about repetition. I don't know. Oh, Catherine, did you want to say anything about stanzas? I think I started writing poetry and I. You know, I've just been reading so many early modern poets, you know, and you can't. And of course, there, Ben Jonson has this poem that's a fit of, a fit of rhyme again, a, a fit of rhyme against rhyme. Uh, yeah, so I think that's a fit of rhyme against rhyme. And he basically, in rhymed stanzaic verse, enumerates the limitations of rhymed stanzaic verse and he's, he's just and this is very johnson he's like oh i hate this but like <laughs> oh i'm still doing it you know? <laughs> like, um and um but i mean you know that that's you know that wasn't everybody was all about stanzas right you know in in kind of um in the period that i've read the most in and so i think it's really just a um conditioned reflex to some extent for me you know <laughs> but that said um two things that I find myself doing one is um I often when I'm writing a poem I often take the formal lead of the first completed stanza of a poem um and it can be a made-up stanza you know mm, like, um, so a like, like a what a nonce form Nuts. Yeah, or like just a, you know, a, um, a spontaneous, I mean, Meliager's log is that. So mm -hmm. like it's, it has a stanzaic form, but the, the, the stanzaic form is the shape of the first completed thought that I had when I was writing that poem. And then I just kept doing it, mm -hmm. you know, like, um, and, 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 you know, I mean, obviously there's editing and, you know, you, you try, you, you do examine it, like you go back over it, you know, does this work? Why does it work? You know, it's, um, yeah. but, um, but you don't have to be like, well, I've got to be, I mean, Linda Gregerson, she invented that particular use of tercets, right? I mean, her tercets are not like, for instance, you know, they're not terza rima, like they're not, I mean, you know, like it's, I feel like again anyway question query right yeah. put a little asterisk and be like you know did did linda gregerson invent the gregersonian tercets but i feel i feel like that 
that is an innovation. She's done her own sort of form. Yeah. It's um, not sure. You, For me, um, it's a um, musical. I mean, it's mm. it's something. It's my ear, yeah. you know, telling me something, and um, it's a very intuitive process. Yep, it bothered me a lot. I think that as a student, when I first I heard Linda Gregerson read, and um, it's the poem sounds different. Like it doesn't. I mean, I don't know, what would that even mean for a poem to sound like it's intersets? But when you see it and you're like, oh, that's, <laughs> oh, you know, it's, um, I mean, I think a sonnet sounds like it's form. Like there are certain things that sound like they're form. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's interesting. I think it's fascinating and I don't understand it, which is probably why I love it. But stanza, I mean, I was just thinking when you were both were talking about how um, painters are often identified by their brush stroke and you know how you use a line how you use a stanza is part it, it can be part of how you kind of identify as a poet but that can also change and, um, and I'm sure brush strokes change too well they definitely do um but there's there's a lot of talk about your toolbox mm. right you know like and and I feel like that's the limit I mean like mm. sometimes useful sometimes not but mm. like you know, you can try different things in different forms. I mean, you can, or you can try, you can be like, okay, I want to write about this. Like, you know, let me see what happens if I try to write it as a sonnet. Like, mm -hmm. uh, uh no, like that's, I mean, so you can just, you know, have it flow from sandbox to sandbox until you kind of find, you know, what it seems to want to be, which is more of what you were saying about your vampire story poem. Um, that it didn't seem to want to be a stanzaic poem, that there was something about the way that, you know, that set of meanings needed to move that was more suited. Yeah. To, yeah. I, and actually I'm working on some more prose poems and I don't, I'm not sure I exactly understand uh, much about how prose poems work. I, I guess I'll do some more reading, but mm -hmm. you know, I am working on some. I don't know. Looks looks like prose sounds like a poem is my favorite definition of a prose poem. But they are tricky, weird little. They're just yeah. odd. They're they are really, but like at the same time, it just play. Like it it has to be about play. And I think that's what, you know, that's what's missing when we're writing academically. Um, yeah, that's so the other often. element of writing something like Vampire Story is is the pure play of it. Yeah. And that that's like such an important part of thinking, you know? Yeah. Like, well, you asked about repetition, mm -hmm. which to me is like very much uh, a playful thing. Yeah. Okay. It's But it's also magical it's you know i love incantatory mm -hmm. poetry and um <clears throat> i was going to tell you that because you asked about it that i really owe my love of repetition to edgar Allan poe's the bells mm -hmm. um, when i was little my father brought home an eight track tape recorder and i tape myself reading the bells 
I intoxicated myself (laughs) with the repetition and the words and the lines and the rhythms and the rhyme and the phrases. And I've read it over and over and over again. And I picked uh, just the last couple of lines of the bells. I don't know if you wanted to hear them, but yeah, it lifts you to some other place, which is part of mystery. Um, Keeping time, time, time in a sort of runic rhyme to the pan of the bells, of the bells, keeping time, 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 and a sort of runic rhyme to the throbbing of the bells, the bells, 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 to the sobbing of the bells, keeping time, 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 as he kneels, kneels, kneels in a happy runic rhyme to the rolling of the bells, of the bells, 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 to the tolling of the bells, of the bells, 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 to the moaning and the groaning of the bells. <laughs> wow. And I yeah. think that, you know, Poe is, you're talking about Gothic and Southern Gothic and the darkness of that. I, if anything, Poe was like a huge influence on me. Mm. The, the uh, music and the rhythm and the, and the repetition and, you know, just masterful. And very demanding. I mean, I think, you know, know, it's not, that poem is not going to let you go until it's kind of (laughs) had its final say. I wasn't going to let those go. (laughs) (laughs) And Whitman too, you know, Whitman and repetition that, that I'm, I'm not going to read it because I've already read three poems, but midwife, that's a poem that has, you know, builds on a lot of repetition. Yeah. Summertime. And I mean, it's, ancient. it's just this ancient thing in us, you know? Absolutely. It's, it's I'm probably one of my favorite, it's probably one of my favorite devices. And it always, I mean, blackberries, blackberries, blackberries. I mean, like that just one word, that one word can be, I mean, I grew up in the church, right? So like, holy, 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 like yeah. that language. Yeah. Um, A triple invocation, which is, um, yeah. yeah. Sometimes I tease my partner with, I divorce you. I divorce you. I divorce you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but thank you both so much for being on the show and for reading your beautiful home. Will you edit out any stupid things? <laughs> Please. <laughs> First of all, there weren't any. But yes, uh, I will. I will absolutely. Uh, if they, especially if there's anything you request, um, I I will go through very very carefully. But I hope that our listeners go get copies of Wiregrass and endeavor to obtain perpetual motion from Ethel. We'll provide links in our show notes to just go directly purchase that and support just an incredible yeah, I have Catherine's book here. So um, now I'm, you know, going to delve back into it. Yeah. After this. It's... It was so great rereading yeah. your books and together. I think um, they're really beautiful kind of in conversation too well thank you and for having us and yeah and, uh, it was you. great yeah, to you. talk to thank you. both of really, you it's really fun really fun thank you for your patience with how long it <laughs> everything has taken me no worries <laughs> <laughs>